This is the Mobile Tech Podcast, brought to you by worldpodcasts.com. Now here's your host, tech girl, Miriam Joie. Brought to you by Audible. Stay tuned for a special offer at the end of the show. Hi, and welcome to the Mobile Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Joie, and today is Thursday, June 3rd, 2021, and my guest is the awesome Carolina Milanese. Hi, Carol. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? I'm glad you're back. I know I just had you on not too long ago, but your insights are always on point. And this is a bit of a slow news week despite Computex happening. But I think we've got a bunch of like big picture things that I wanted to pick your brain about. Things like the chip shortage and the general state of the chip business, I guess. And then things like, you know, what is Google going to do this year with the pixels and how that fits into the rest of the universe of tech. And then things like OnePlus stumbling, it seems to me. Yeah, I mean, I have a whole bunch, but those are the <laughs> ones. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's the thing with tech, right? Even in a slow news week, there's always so much to talk about. Yeah, and I'm actually surprised it's a slow news week with Computex actually happening this year. Last year, they canceled it. You know, I usually go to Taipei, so it's really right. weird for me to not be there. Obviously, it's a virtual event, so it wouldn't matter if I couldn't be there. But, you know, usually there's all these related press conferences and things, and you kind of mingle, and you get a... And that's the thing about trade shows. You get a certain vibe, a taste, right, of where is the industry's pulse? And I'm not really feeling it as strongly because I feel it's so remote and with the time zones. But there's a few announcements you should cover. And in general, I kind of want to... Pick your brain about that one thing that's in the back of my mind, which is we have all these new chips being announced on GPU side, on mobile, mm -hmm. you know, Intel for desktop and for uh, laptops. And here we are still in a chip shortage. Where do you think the industry is, is standing right now? How can they get out of this rut? Well, I, I think that part of it will be solved by just you know people going back to a more normal routine if you like um from a from a manufacturing perspective um you know we're still uh, paying the price of covid of the shutdown uh you know yeah. last year so there's there's still catching up to do unfortunately with with um, manufacturing on the chipset side things don't just you know, magically Fix. Um, yeah. get solved, right? Because, um, you know, thinking about a new manufacturing facility and developing that, which is obviously what Intel has been talking about since uh, the new leadership with, with Pat came on board, um, takes years. Um, it is not something that you fix in six months. It's going to take years to, especially to um, try and change the balance between a high dependence on a few markets like China and Taiwan, the concerns that there are uh, around how China will continue to handle Taiwan as a, as a yeah, market, right? right? Mm -hmm. um, there, you know, the geopolitical situation has an impact. And so there's, I think, definitely um, uh, a need and a want for the US to be put back on the map as far as manufacturing. And so that's what, you know, Intel has been talking about as an example. Um, but it will take a while. And I think the other part is we need to be careful not to be fooled by it was only because of the pandemic. Because on one side, yes, there was the shutdown, but the other side of it uh, really was the high demand that continued. Right. You know, one of the reasons why the uh, automotive industry has been struggling with chipset is because they counted on people not buying cars during the pandemic. Yeah, they turned the tap, right? They said, we Correct. don't need these chips anymore. So the manufacturers of chips like TSMC and Samsung and others just went and started making other chips for other things. And I, I'm well aware of that, but I think it's, uh, it's, it's kind of telling how the... You know, these like the, the auto industry, I think, you know, is a strategic mistake and they're paying yes. for it right now. But I think the rest of the industry, you're right, there's more to it than COVID. Yeah, and, I, and it's, it's demand, right? We have never relied on technology as much as, much as we did uh, during COVID. And I don't think that that will go away 
as we are able to go back to a more normal day to day. You know, I think that some of the changes that we made in, you know, how we uh, we buy our weekly, you know, shopping, food shopping to uh, how we want to communicate with our doctors, you know, telemedicine and, and online shopping. Um, some of it on education and then, of course, um, you know, the whole hybrid work are here to stay, which yeah. means that we will continue to spend more time online, which is done through technology and devices. And and we also, I think, have come to understand um, the limitations that um, investing in a poorly equipped a device being a phone or or a PC will have on our experience. So I do think that there's definitely um, uh, an appetite from a consumer perspective to invest on more capable, more powerful devices that are a long-term investment that we are making. Yeah. So there's, I think we're in a period of transition, and the you know COVID in someone accelerated it. Why do you think the industry didn't see this coming? Not the COVID part, but the fact that, you know, chip manufacturing has been constrained for so long now. Like, I remember thinking to myself a few years back, going like, I'm a little concerned when I see that at the time, I think it was at seven nanometer, or eight nanometer, or ten nanometer, whatever it was, that, that only TSMC and at the time, I think it was Samsung was doing it. Yeah. And I'm like, I understand that it takes uh, billions in investment and yes. tons of know-how know to do it, right? I mean, look where Intel's at, they're behind. But I, why didn't that investment happen? Like, you, the, especially from the companies who make the products, right? They should have funneled a ton of money into their partners, you know, coffins to guarantee that they were gonna, not, not going to run out of chips, basically, right? Yeah. I do think it's a combination of not foreseeing how quickly, um, you know, the, the kind of the push towards a, a digital living actually happened because of COVID. So I think everybody thought that we would have more time. Right. Uh, I agree with you that, um, you know, this kind of a, the writing was on the wall, right? And so sooner or later, we were going to find ourselves in this predicament. But um, the investment is the other part is, um, you know, we, we sometimes forget that similarly to a lot of enterprises that have been talking about moving to the cloud and, and digital transformation, most of the IT departments were just busy keeping the lights on. And I think that's what it is, even from a manufacturing perspective, is the idea of, you know, we are supplying what we can now. We are constrained from how much more money we can invest. And, and uh, you know, it, it's a long bet that you're making and it might not pay off. So I think there's just a um, kind of some caution as well, right, in, in the way that, that these companies decide to invest. Yeah, for sure. Um, so speaking of Intel, let's dive into some of the more specific news items. There, I want to talk quickly about Intel and Qualcomm Samsung and then Samsung AMD, which is a lot of it is going to affect mobile more, obviously, because of the show. So Intel announced their uh, refresh of some uh, Tiger Lake U-series chips, which are used in ultra-thin, ultra-light la uh, laptops mm -hmm. and notebooks. And only two chips which is interesting but the the takeaway for me is that they've now managed to reach a whopping five gigahertz on ultra thin and lights which you know i don't really care myself because i'm pretty much on the apple camp now and m1 rules my world but i think it's it's telling this is kind of a good example of you know kind of a snapshot of the timeline we're in right now that intel is still struggling with their x86 chips basically is my takeaway from the story yeah i i think that we know that you know it's going to take time for intel to get competitive um uh, with the m1 but also with some of the things that that amd is bringing to market right, right? um and it's a question of optimizing the system around the chip in my in my perspective so it's not like you know intel has nothing to offer it's just a question of how can they work um with the rest of, of their architecture to make sure that they leverage the best what they got, right? And so it's kind of working with what you got uh, on one side. The other side is, is there anything that can be done uh, with a tighter collaboration with Microsoft? Because I think that 
the the conversation often you know with the m1 and is you know m1 versus intel and this mac is better than that mac but one part that is missed in some of the conversation is actually the role that the vertical integration that apple has achieved with the os and the silicon is able to deliver and that's something that intel doesn't have right uh, and and i think that from a microsoft perspective whether it is Intel, Qualcomm, or AMD, yeah. that is the part that I would like them to really focus on going forward. 100%. And I, I think we're going to talk about Qualcomm, but you mentioned Qualcomm a part of that. And I think it's the same problem. It's like Qualcomm can probably make much better chips than they're making right now for their ultra mobile, um, you know, for the ACPCs, uh, the thin and light laptops and Chromebooks. But I think that they need to work tightly with Microsoft to make that happen. Like, to me, that's been the big miss. Like, it's Microsoft not supporting, you know, 32-bit apps or whatever it was. It, it's like, this is the challenge. But back to Intel for a second, because um, this kind of also ties us in with, with Qualcomm, is, you know, Intel sold their 5G assets to that's Apple, right. right? And here they are also launching at Computex the Intel 5G Solution 5000, which is a PCI Express uh, you know, mini PCI Express uh, card for sub-6 5G uh, made in partnership with MediaTek. So that's kind of interesting. I mean, we remember, we, we knew that this was coming. MediaTek had announced this. But it's interesting to see a, a product finally. But to see that this product is a sub-6 only product, obviously, because MediaTek, right? Like, it seems weird to me because Intel is like in this kind of stuck position in a way because they know that to be really successful in some markets like maybe japan and the u.s where millimeter wave is a thing they're gonna have to eventually get that as well right but i, th I think mediatek's working on it yeah i i think it's a question of time i i can't think that um you know mediatek is not going to get there by the time the market is ripe um you know you're you are still talking about uh, kind of fringe use cases from a from a connectivity perspective on the PC. Um, I'm a believer. I do think that once you try a connected PC, you're never going to go back to 100%. something else. Yeah. Um, I think you know right now we might we might not feel the need because we're home. But even you know to be honest with people that live in in um, kind of highly, uh, you know, densely populated areas, uh, Wi-Fi is being a strain, right, during the pandemic, because either, like me, you you have a, a, a kid who spends their life on, you know, gaming consoles when they're not in school, and so that drains my my Wi-Fi enough, um, <laughs> or, um, or just simply, you know, busy, busy connections because of where you live. So, you know, the the arrival of 5G is alleviating some of that. And I think that we've seen carriers like T-Mobile with a big appetite to come in and disrupt the fixed broadband yeah. market yeah. by offering mobile broadband, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and I think that's great for, for consumers, but we are not quite there as people really thinking, I want a 5G-enabled PC. Yeah, no, I think also the pricing is is pretty tricky, right? Like you buy, right. um, you know, internet from an ISP and it's going to be maybe say $100 a month, like for a pretty decent connection. And you can share that amongst probably two or three dozen devices in your home, right? Like all your security right. cameras, your, you know, your, uh, your laptops, your phones, um, smartwatches, whatever Smart you might speakers. have around if you have a yep. family. And it's cost effective. You have three, four people sharing all that bandwidth and it still works okay. But once you start adding every device has a plan, the, you know, it's, I think that's, the carriers in the US are slowing down this this segment. Oh, I think no that they question. need to accept the fact that we need pricing that scales and they're not willing to do that at all they're still treating this as a main line that could be shared and yes of course it could be shared as a hotspot but you look at other markets in the world right like every time i go to asia and i buy a prepaid sim there i just like or even europe i was in portugal not too long ago you know before the pandemic and i you got a, i got a sim for like something like three or four euros i yeah. had like unlimited data for a month on 4g of course like i think this is a big issue we have is that they're just greedy you know i i i definitely agree with you i think where the connectivity plays more uh, a role in my 
uh, view is on the enterprise side, where exactly. it's yeah. going to be easier, right, for an organization to say, you know what, I'm just going to give you a connected PC, so I don't have to worry about, yep. you know, what security your home Wi-Fi is running on, and I, you know, you're going to yep. get this, and these and are the things that it. you can do. Absolutely. Yeah, they can get like bundled data plans that buy the hundreds or thousands for their employees. So I'm excited about this. You have the news more than I do here. So I'm going to let you speak on this Qualcomm and Samsung announcement. Yeah, it was kind of quiet because it happened during the um, the Qualcomm keynote and uh, uh, basically is uh, the, the, the launch of uh, the uh, Galaxy Book Go. Uh, uh-huh. which is running the new Qualcomm chipset 7C, uh, yeah. which is a more mass market uh, ACPC uh, um, uh, solution that is really aimed at, um, I hate saying democratizing connected PCs because you know, <laughs> there's still people that can't afford that. But you know, the starting price point for this Samsung device, $346. So wow. um, you know, to me is really you know, now having the opportunity of having a connected experience on Windows 10. Um, and so from a Windows perspective, it's a good opportunity to go and capture some market share, especially in education and, and small businesses, maybe first line workers, um, you know, where the need for computing is there, but it, you don't need all the bells and whistles or something that is priced at, you know, $900 to yeah, $1,000. Right. Exactly. Does it include 4G connectivity at that price or is that extra? Um, so the 346 is without the connectivity. They have not said uh, from a U.S. perspective. They said later in the year will come with 5G oh, wow. connectivity. Okay. Yeah, yes. because the uh, the seven the seven C chip, which we discussed on a couple of shows ago, it has uh, actually 4G built in. So I was kind of wondering about that. Did they make any announcements regarding Chromebooks? By the way, I have not seen anything specific on Chromebooks. I have to say. Yeah, because but I, like you, but the time difference was not my friend this week, <laughs> I have to say. Exactly. No, it's just because, you know, Qualcomm implied, you know, when I talked to them about this 7C chip that we might be seeing it in Chromebooks because MediaTek's done really great with their chips on Chromebooks, yes. on really affordable Chromebooks. And, you know, they're, they're pretty competent too, like in terms of performance, these, these, these MediaTek-based Chromebooks. So I have a soft spot for Chromebooks, I'll be honest. So there you go. Um, the next item from Computex-ish is that Samsung's Exynos chips in the future are going to be using AMD's RDNA 2 technology for the GPUs and the graphics. You know, where do you see this? Because obviously Qualcomm is kind of the juggernaut in terms of flagship phones, at least on, in this market. And I would say you know, a lot of Chinese phones use Qualcomm chips too, and Europe as well. So we can we can still say that even though MediaTek sells way more chips and has some really great chipsets like the 1200, which we're going to talk about a little later, I feel like there's very little competition. Apple does their own thing, obviously. Do you feel this is potentially a play on Samsung getting in the kind of higher-end flagship chipset SoC for mobile? Do you think they even have a chance at this point? I think this is a PC play actually after okay. you know we've been we've been talking about Qualcomm and you know they announced the product with with Qualcomm but I see a bigger opportunity for Samsung to look at the PC market versus the mobile market for exactly the reasons that you said you know the mobile market is pretty set the just the cycles of getting your chips if you're looking at the US market right just the cycle of getting their chipsets approved by the carrier is just a pain yeah. Um, and so they're better off just leveraging Qualcomm and the economies of scale that that brings. On the PC side, things are a little bit easier. And I wonder if there's also, uh, you know, there's with, with Samsung, there's always a very close look to what Apple is doing. Um, and so I wonder if they think that they have an opportunity to have, you know, an M1 moment ah, on, on, the, on the PC market where they are clearly more and more interested to make a dent, right? They, they have come out with their own 
first time that we had an unpacked focused on uh, on PCs. Indeed. So clearly, clearly there's there's a there's a want there, and I think that it might be easier for them um, to deliver something on the PC side by leveraging, you know, what I think is going to become a much more uh, dynamic kind of ARM based. Um, you know, marketplace, uh, thanks oh, for to sure. some extent to Apple, but also, of course, to the, the, the effort that we've seen from, from Qualcomm. I mean, I'm going to, you know, mark my age here, but I predicted ARM would take over the world way back when ARM was announced with the initial BBC Micro computer in the 80s. Like, I immediately saw that architecture and I was like, I couldn't even imagine a phone in my pocket yet. A computer in my pocket, but I knew it right. would happen. Star Trek had taught me that it would happen. And <laughs> I thought to myself, this architecture, as a budding engineer at the time, you know, in high school, studying a lot of electronics, I was like, this is the future. And I can't believe that I had the insight back then to see it that way. I still think it's the future. I still think that Intel needs to make ARM chips. They, they dropped Xscale years ago. And that was a strategic mistake, but they need to turn around. They, uh, there's nothing wrong for them to continue developing x86, but I think that those days are over. They need to, like, it's probably a huge pivot for them to admit this to themselves and to their investors, but they have to. I don't see any other option here. Like, this is the only way they're going to stay relevant. And I think to some extent, ARM has already taken over the, oh, the for world. Sure. I mean, it, it is quite amazing to see how key their architecture is to so many different things. Not not just, you know, what we see as far as phones, but if you're looking at IoT, if you're looking at connected cars and, and, and so much more. Yeah. Which is, you know, explains why NVIDIA was so interested. Yeah, for sure. And so, you know, I haven't mentioned there's a lot more AMD and NVIDIA news from Computex, but it's not mobile, you know, per se. You know, there was an announcement that Tesla is using the NVIDIA chipset in the Model S and Model X refresh, for example, which is for the in-car entertainment so that you can play mm -hmm. high-performance games in the car while you're charging. You know, these are technically mobile because I, I do like to think of cars, especially connected and EVs, as a mobile device on wheels. But we have a lot more to talk about that's more specific to phones as mobile. So I just want to mention that you should continue checking out Computex. Um, by the time this podcast gets published, it'll be just the end of it. So it's still happening right now. The next topic I want to kind of really get your, your insights on, Carol, is this Google Pixel 6 news that's been <laughs> leaking slowly like usual, like every year there's all these pixel leaks. But this year, the picture that it's painting is very different in the sense that it looks like we're going to get like an ultra flagship from Google. And in the vacuum, I'm as a Pixel and Nexus fan, I'm super happy about that. That's what I want. You know, I've always had the approach in my head that Google can be a loss leader, like Sony can be a loss leader, like I thought LG could be a loss leader as well, but they decided to cut their losses because LG sold washers and dryers and TVs and because, you know, uh, Google has this incredible ad business and because Sony is also a juggernaut in cameras and mm -hmm. PlayStation. And so they could kind of have a portfolio of mobile just to kind of show off in a way. And it's, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. The business case is more of a halo business case. It's like you make these things and people are excited and they come to your ecosystem and you recoup your costs. You sell at a loss. And many times like Amazon does that for their hardware. So yeah. that's been my approach in that, in that within that framework, making a super high-end pixel that costs $1,000 and you sell 10,000 of them was to me, an acceptable compromise. But what we're hearing now is that they are wanting to compete with Samsung. They are apparently going to spend the marketing money to go out there after Samsung in North America as the Android alternative and spend the money, the billions it takes to make that happen. Assuming they can get the ducks lined up in a row, get their marketing done, get the carriers on board, do you think they even stand a chance? So I hope that what they want to do is not going after Samsung, but broadening their reach. I think the problem that that uh, Google is facing with Android is the fact that 
more and more when you're looking at the Android players, mm -hmm. you end up with very strong Chinese players. And so when it comes to the US market, the choice is really now between Apple and Samsung. Yes, there's OnePlus, still niche. Yes, mm -hmm. there's TCL, more of a value play for a lot of, of consumers. Value play Motorola as well. value play. So that high end is really like 99% on Samsung alone. Um, the reason why I think that is more about going side by side mm -hmm. and so almost partnering in a way to capture more of a high end versus going and taking share from Samsung is that we've seen Samsung getting closer to the Google ecosystem. Right. Not, not to Pixel, right? It's, it's, it, that's that church and state kind of separation <laughs> that we have, right? Yeah, right. What is good for Google might not be good for Pixel. And so how they are juggling that, because we're seeing Samsung clearly embracing all the Google services, right, for their phones. Uh, we are talking about Duo, they're talking about Assistant. So I think that there's definitely, in my view, a change in strategy from Samsung to say, okay, we are gonna give up uh, any uh, desire to create an alternative ecosystem. And we are now, right, so we're not pushing Bixby, we're not trying to do other things. We are just working together with Google. And on the other side, you have Pixel that still wants to remain the best example mm -hmm. or the best delivery of mm -hmm. a Google experience. Absolutely. And it is. And so I, I think what, that's what you're going to end up having. You're going to have two high-end offering, one that is for any consumers that is deeply into Google services, and so they'll look at Pixel, right? And one that, yeah, they use Google services, but they don't, you know, they also use other things, and so they might be more, more prone to using Samsung. That, to me, would be the smart move. Trying to go after Samsung doesn't really, I mean, obviously, from a big Pixel perspective, it helps with revenue, but to your point, they might be successful in the US, but not at a worldwide level. So, yeah. I, you know, it just takes too much. Yeah, no, what I meant by going after Samsung is I meant taking away some of their market share in North America. And you're right about this Google and Samsung getting closer together. I mean, the whole Android Wear or Wear OS yeah. announcement at uh, Google I.O. recently, which we covered on the show. I mean, Absolutely. to me, it is interesting that what I've always said should happen is happening, which is Google should focus on making their software and services. And, you know, sorry to say that, but have the hardware stuff as a practical hobby in the sense that, yes, you could make money like, you know, the, the smart speakers and other things could certainly be uh, a way to make some decent money, but with the purpose of driving your software and services. But, but you know, for a while there, I think they were kind of wanting to take hardware more seriously and I don't think they shouldn't take hardware seriously, but I feel that by partnering more with Samsung, because the chips apparently for the upcoming Pixel Watch and the manufacturing of the Whitechapel chip for the Pixel 6 is going to be handled by Samsung, mm -hmm. right? Like that to me makes more sense. It's kind of like what Nexus was, right? Where others made the hardware, but you focused on the experience yeah. You know, but now you're having your brand on it as well, which I think is really smart. And I think that it's smart for Pixel to focus on the high end. Uh, at the end of the day, that is where you're going to have most of the consumers that really are deep into uh, the Google ecosystem. And, and that's where the value is. Uh, in a way, I think of Pixel in a similar way that I think of Surface right, on the yeah. PC side, uh, yeah. where you can continue to have a, a very um, active, uh, you know, partnership with all the other OEMs, but focus on the high end and make sure that that relationship that you have between software services and hardware is so tight that people see that as the best in class, you know, kind of experience overall. Yeah, I, I think that Google has already had the right roadmap and somehow they deviated from it. I know. And it didn't make any sense to me. It's like, but now I said, I'm hearing they're even more serious in sense that they are going to funnel a lot of marketing money to 
make the hardware division a more prominent player in this country, at least this country, or maybe Europe and maybe Canada, North America. Yeah. Yeah, I think selected market for sure. There's there's a need there. Um, I, I also hope that they're going to stay on track. There's this flip-flopping back and forth between, yes, we are a high-end, no, we're mass market. Now we're back at being high-end. But you see, I think that's Google. Google will never really stick with one thing. It is part of their culture and the way they do things. And that's true. they're very insular in many ways. I, they don't play well with others. Like, I hate to say this, but at the same time, they're doing such great things that they probably don't need to play well with others because others just have to follow suit and work with them. And it's a little bit arrogant. I mean, you know, we can go on, you and I, living both living in Silicon Valley, about the arrogance of Silicon Valley. You know, Apple has its own taste of arrogance, and and but Google certainly does feel the most um, capricious at times of the startup turned mega corporations, right? You know, Apple seems to be much more steady in their in their approach and it's evolved over time, but you can kind of draw some clean, straight line interpolating everything, whereas Google seems to be more of a seesaw and, and Facebook is just evil. So like, I mean, they're just like, they lost the plot so long ago, it's not even funny, right? But, but see, for me, it's a question of the balance between confidence and arrogance, right? right? And I think that when you look, when I look at Pixel in particular, there, there certainly is some arrogance, but I don't know if there's enough confidence in, in believing that the product that they have and the vision that they have um, can be executed. And, and I hope that's what they got back, right? That, that this, what we are hearing and this refocus on the high end shows that they have more confidence in what they can deliver. Yeah, and I think it's also a strategy problem. Like from the first, very first pixel, we've been telling them, you're almost there. You're missing a few things to have a proper flagship that can compete with Apple and Samsung. What does Google do the next year? They screw it up again, right? Pixel 2, they screwed it up. Pixel 3, they screwed it up. Pixel 4, they screwed it up. And then Pixel 5, they decided, oh, let's make an affordable mid-range, which wasn't affordable. It was a mid-range, all right, but because they put millimeter wave in there for the whims of Verizon, probably, it was $100 more than it should be, and it was $100 less everywhere else in the world. It's, it's like, come on. Like, we know you have the expertise to make a no-compromise flagship that even costs a lot of money. Like, I don't really care if it costs a lot of money. Like, you have the A-series. Continue making those fantastic, affordable A-series pixels for the majority of people. But give us, please, just give us <laughs> something that competes with the iPhone 12 Pro Max and with the freaking Samsung Galaxy S21 Ultra, like, right. or the Note series. Like, you cannot not be a part of that, even if you don't sell a lot. Like, and they've always tried to kind of like weasel their way out of this flagship thing, right? It's like, there's only really one way to make a proper flagship, right? And it's <laughs> like, I hate to say this, but... You have to have a certain number of ingredients in the recipe to have a flagship. And they always kind of miss Like, they seem to be missing the garlic every time. You know what I'm saying? It's like... Oh. Yes, I know. I'm Italian. I know the, the importance of garlic in exactly. a recipe. <laughs> so I find it frustrating as somebody who really is invested in the Google ecosystem and really likes their phones. Um, but that's why I switched to OnePlus for the last year, OnePlus 8 Pro. And this year, I can't make up my mind right now. I'm still like, I have an update to the OnePlus 9 Pro, even though I have one, because it's too much work to switch phones. And now with the Pixel 6 Pro in the in the, in the the horizon, I'm really kind of looking forward to it. So the, the latest Pixel 6 rumor is that it might have a gimbal camera for its main camera. Now, Vivo, which is a BBK Group company, has put an, an actual physical gimbal. Think of OIS on steroids, instead of the lens being stabilized or the sensor, like sensor shift on the iPhone 12 Pro Max, this is the entire sensor and lens mounted on a tiny motorized gimbal inside the phone. And they've done this on last year's X50 Pro, I believe, and this year's X60 Pro and Pro Plus. And these two, I've got these phones here and the gimbal is spectacular. Like you, you've never seen you know, stabilization that's not electronic being done this well. So this would be interesting. I mean, this would mean Google kind of going from a stagnation, like 
proven but obsolete sensor and lens setup on all the pixels we've had in the last few years to the most bleeding edge tech you know it's it seems a little excessive to me because you kind of do maybe want to go with something that's still proven but more advanced right yeah i also is a departure also because very innovation tends to be delivered by software not hardware right yeah and it could be a software gimbal that's the other thing like uh the lg wing had a software gimbal right um so that seems to be more plausible than the hardware route especially for you know they're trying to balance yes i end from an experience perspective but obviously maybe limit the cost uh on their side and with their ai and machine learning expertise they can probably do some real crazy magic with a ton of the gimbaled content they've acquired through google photos so we'll see but i brought up oneplus because there's not rumors anymore now pete lau has actually confirmed there's a oneplus nord core edition 5g coming to india and a similar but we don't know the details oneplus nord n200 5g coming to north america now the nord ce 5g is going to be announced on june 10th so stay tuned for that it's rumored to have a snapdragon 750g so it's basically slotting right below the original Nord in terms of spec sheets and price. And of course, for India, it's going to be very priced aggressively. It has an AMOLED yeah. display. So we're not talking about like the Nord N100 where they really decontented the Nord experience to hit a price point. And in my opinion, these phones don't feel like OnePlus phones anymore, right? Other yeah. than maybe the software. So it'll be interesting to see what they do with the US version, the Nord N200 5G, because I hope they don't, you know, give us like a Snapdragon 480 5G or something, you know? Like, I, I felt like the Nord with the 690, the Snapdragon 690, not a bad chip, but they basically wanted to just be able to say we have a 5G phone that's yeah, $300 or whatever, yeah. because the no no notification slider, fingerprint sensor in the back, all plastic, IPS panel. It was just, it just felt like parts been special from BBK Group, not at all like a OnePlus phone. The only thing that kind of held it together a bit was was Oxygen OS. And I'm a little concerned, and I think you are too, right? Where is OnePlus going here? Exactly. I mean, where, you know, I always liked OnePlus because they were uh, very focused and they were very clear about their identity. They obviously care a great deal about their core audience. And I do start to feel now that they've become uh, a way for BBK to expand their reach by leveraging the OnePlus brand, but without giving back anything to OnePlus. So in, in other words, I feel that some moves are benefiting the you know BBK group more than they're benefiting OnePlus. And yeah. I'm a little bit concerned about that. Yeah, no, I think that so the Nord last year, the original that we did not get in the US, was one of my favorite phones 2020. It was an absolute masterpiece for its price point. In, in a way, I, I wouldn't even be surprised if we could call it a loss leader. It was so well-priced for the level of performance it provided and the feature set. It was unbelievable almost. I mean, consider this, Carol. The Nord had OIS when the OnePlus 9 flagship non-pro doesn't have OIS today. <laughs> and another point of reference is the Nord had a plastic frame with a glass back and the OnePlus 9 has a plastic frame with a glass back. So Yeah, it was really fought out as, as a device. It was incredible for the money. And I thought to myself, and you know, it's the last thing that Carl Pei worked on there, right? And Carl left right after. And I think what happened is it was such a great phone but the price was so affordable that it wasn't bringing in the kind of money BBK wanted at the higher up, right? And so they had, they had, I think, a falling out on that. Like, you know, I think Carl wanted to continue going in that direction of making extremely price competitive, but reaching to the mid-range now a little bit more with the Nord series, and that they weren't going to do that. So he, I guess he left, and then now they're just kind of milking this Nord brand for kind of just generic crap phones in many ways. I mean, they're not that bad, but I feel like, you know, they feel a lot like Moto G phones to me. Like, you know, they're not bad phones. Yeah, exactly. There's a place for those kind of phones for sure. Yeah, but but 
it doesn't really bring anything back to the brand. They don't have a personality. They don't yeah. have that one plus thing going. And so I'm hoping that they got so much negative feedback from the N100 and the N10, right? That they are going to hopefully with this Nord CE and Nord N200 finally give us something that's like, because these are spec wise supposed to be better than what we've seen. Yeah. So like, I'm hoping that we, they rectify a little bit. And I think they don't have a choice for India. India is so competitive right now. You know, I have two phones in my hands right now. Caro, that costs less than 200 US dollars with MediaTek Dimensity 700, and they have incredible performance for the money. They're 5G phones for less than $200 US, and they're, you know, primarily India and China market. And one is a Realme phone, and that's the other thing. Realme, BBK's own brand, is eating OnePlus's lunch at the mid-range and low-end right now. They've become the new OnePlus in many ways. And then the other one is, of course, a Poco, which is Xiaomi, yeah. right? So I think I'm waiting to see on this, but I really want OnePlus to continue being, you know, a leader, not just playing along with what Samsung's doing. You know, they're too small. They need to really continue to compete and, you know, kind of out Samsung in terms of specs and features, yeah, right? Be you be unique as well in some of the approaches that they take, both from a feature yeah. set and go to market. If they are going to be selling phones at the price point they're selling phones now, which is pretty high, right? At the high end. We're going to have to see more from them is what I'm feeling, right? So that's that's kind of where I'm at with that. I think that the, the OnePlus 9 Pro is still a solid phone, but it's kind of outgunned by the similarly priced S21 Ultra, really, you know? Right. And that can't happen for OnePlus anymore. So we'll see how it goes. But speaking of Xiaomi, we just talked about Poco. They demoed 200-watt wire charging and 120-watt wireless charging. Like, wow. And so eight minutes to fully charge the phone at 200 watts and 15 minutes for the 120-watt wireless. I don't know what to say. I know, right? Is and, and to some extent, I watched the video because they have a video to prove the time, right? Because nobody was believing them, I think. <laughs> so they had a video to prove it. And there's part of me that says, do I really need that? And there's part of me that says, hell yeah. Because I think that the, you know, the, the emphasis on battery life that we had for so long it started to shift for me when I started to use wearables, where, you know, the time it takes to charge something is more important than the time, you know, how long, whatever right. it is, is going to yeah. last. And I feel that every time I have to recharge my, my aura ring, because for something that small that lasts a week, I'm not prepared to wait half an hour for no. it to recharge, right? And so there's that and, and the promise of, I think what uh, you know what the technology gives you uh, that I think is really interesting, right? So if it takes eight minutes for a phone, where are we going to be for other devices? Exactly. How does it scale up to say electric cars or whatever, right? And and I think that for me, what's exciting about this is having used phones with fifty watt and sixty five watt wire charging now pretty steadily for a while. The Chinese phones and of course OnePlus with the Nine Pro this year and the AT last year. I, I find that it's, you're at the point now where I no longer charge my phones overnight. With fast charge, anything over 30 watt, I now plug in when I find that I'm too low and I plug them in not to fully charge them. I plug them in just to like give them a boost. And because they charge so quickly, I often plug them in and forget and I go into the kitchen, you know, make myself a sandwich and I come back out and boom, I'm back at 90% and I'm done. Like, you know what I'm saying? It's that kind of opportunistic charging that I think people are going to switch to going forward once all the phones support this kind of fast wired charging. That's that's kind of my my, my gut feeling about it. I, I agree. I, I think that the, that promise, and, and I don't know, you know, I don't see this as a selling point that people are going to go get it, but I think that the, the attention that technology is going to have and, and the, uh, the kind of a wish list is going to generate is going to be interesting. 
Yeah. And you know, it's interesting. Some phone manufacturers like Asus on the uh, Zenfone 8 that I reviewed last weekend on the as, on the ROG phones are now allowing you to do what you can do in electric cars, which is set a maximum charge level. So you can set it to 90% to right. kind of make the battery health better over time. Yeah. Or you can say, don't charge a high speed, only charge at like five watt or 10 watt so that yes, I plan to continue charging overnight every day but i don't want you when i'm plugging you in at night keep yourself at 10 watt or 5 watt and stop at 90 percent, which i think is very healthy for the batteries long term so i think giving people these options you know it's very android like it it lets you obviously have get, tweak things but right. you know optimized charging on the oneplus uh, flagships is an option too and and it learns it uses machine learning and ai to learn your habits and kind of set the sweet spot of how fast you can charge and how high you can charge based on your charging habits and i think it's going to be needed because charging at 200 watt even if you plug it in for two minutes at 200 watt you're really stressing that battery out for those two minutes right, right? so the life of the battery is going to get affected. So they're going to have definitely have to do something about that. But it's interesting. Um, and speaking of other interesting phones from companies who do make phones with 60 or 65 watt charging, uh, Huawei P50 was teased as part of the Harmony OS announcement recently. We're going to talk about Harmony OS in a second. But the Huawei P50 flagship was shown. And so we now have an idea what the design is going to look like a little bit. The back camera pod is very interesting. It's got like two big circles that have cameras spread all over them. And the reason that... There were a lot of pictures that were showing a stovetop, right? (laughs) Yes, it looked like a stovetop. You're right. But I think what's interesting and what I want to talk with you about is, you know, Huawei and Harmony OS and generally speaking, where, where Huawei is at with these flagships, I mean, they're, I'm not even sure what chip this is going to use because the Kirin 9000, the last chip they made is, you know, they're, they have very few of those made, right? Cause they couldn't continue manufacturing them. So because of lack of foundries and stuff. And so I'm wondering, you know, nobody knows the specs on this, but I'm wondering where they're going to go. Obviously they were smart to sell off honor. And Honor, we covered this on the last couple of shows. Honors has announced that they're going to use Qualcomm chips going forward. And oh. Honors announced that they're going to use make phones with GMS going forward because they're not constrained. So in my head, in the back of my head, I can't help but think that maybe Huawei sold Honor on purpose for this. And they still have some ties in the background that nobody knows about, you know, and that this is their way to circumvent the whole US sanctions things by having some sort of like non-Huawei at least, you know, shell company of a shell company of a shell company, some kind of weird right. arrangement where um, they, they still have some control, but now they can make phones with Qualcomm chips and they can make phones with GMS, right? At the same time, they continue to make their flagships, like the P50, I'm sure is going to be a photography monster. But I do worry a little bit because Huawei brought so much innovation to the table. And right now they're really, at least in hardware, they're really being hamstrung by these by these sanctions right they they are and i think they are slightly um i don't know unrealistic maybe is is the term that i want to use as far as you know how how they think their os is going to positively impact purchase drive uh because for me and we can argue is it android is it not is it fork is it not is like it kind of walks like a duck and quacks like a duck i mean we we know from the technical analysis from people we trust that this is android so so i i find it weird that huawei persists in their marketing and messaging to disagree with that it's it's very chinese right it's very chinese communist party doctrine here it's like let's gaslight people as much as we can so that they will believe what we say i mean come on like we've proven that it's it's just android but i wonder if there's also a concern by admitting that right that that the powers to be might be on them um of course i understand all that so but i do think that you know forks have not worked forever 
players in the past. So no. why is Huawei any different? And I think well, that- this is for China. This is for Chinese market, right? Like if they can continue somehow making chips and making phones with chips, they can sell tons of phones in China with. This. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And it doesn't matter. But I, I mean, for China, not even the apps matter because you know you, you live and die within yeah. one one <laughs> place, right? So totally, it doesn't really matter. But but from an international perspective, obviously it does. And I think that you know there's no question that the sanctions have impacted how yeah. willing the carriers are to to uh, have their devices on the portfolio and how willing consumers are to jump through hoops to be able to use you know a device that yes is great the camera is fantastic but you know I, there's limitations on the user experience that i get from an application perspective Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's a major issue. It, it initially doesn't seem like a big deal. And, and then you start digging and you find out like you can't use Uber and Lyft. And like, you know, Correct. it's just like you get to a point where it's just like I'm carrying this around to be a point and shoot camera that's connected to the Internet. Yeah. And, and it, it's not worth it anymore. And And I hate to say this because, again, I felt like they had such something so good for a long time. But but the the news is basically Harmony OS is coming to the Huawei flagships. Um you know, they, they basically kind of released the version two of the OS and, and it's going to be trickling down. It, you know, I'm not sure if it's something you have a choice with or not, or if you're going to get an update that suddenly replaces, you know, their MIUI, not MIUI, EMUI. Ah. <laughs> uh. I think that you and I just discovered also that they should have a better name for their UI than EMUI. Yes. So I think, you know, it's interesting to see that they're going to be replacing their existing flavor of Android with probably another flavor of Android that is just rebranded Harmony OS at this point. Uh, I don't know. I feel sad in a way about all this. Xiaomi's been very smart. They've taken the opportunity that Huawei is down to really broaden their PR reach globally. Like I have received almost every major important phone from Xiaomi, Poco, Redmi in the last year. They, they really have cranked the dial up. And if I request pretty much any phone in their portfolio right now, I think they would send it to me. And so even though they don't even sell here in the US, now they know my audience has a lot of folks from India and Europe. That's right, it's the, yeah, it's the reach that you have. It's amazing to me that they're really kind of like Huawei used to be. Huawei used to be kind of in my face with PR. And I don't, th- and I don't mean that negatively. I mean, like they were present. They were there for me. And I have to laud Xiaomi for doing that this year. They're just there. Like they are willing to give me whatever it is so that I can get my hands on it. And, you know, me UI is what it's called. So in my head, when I think of an UI based, uh, what's it called? Android skin, I think of me UI now. I don't think of EM UI anymore. So. And there lies the problem, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Huawei was never really that great at marketing. I always thought that Honor should be kind of like their play for the West, you know? Yeah. And in a way, it has become that. And, you know, I actually did some consulting for Honor Huawei back in the day when they were still pretty uh, pretty popular in Europe, you know, before the whole, sh- you know, debacle with the the government here and the, and, the, and the sanctions. This is like five years ago or something. And I advised to them. I said, you know, make Honor a global brand, as it were, Go with Qualcomm and push a pure Android experience. Yeah. And you will you will sell a ton. And in a way, that's what we're getting now after this spin-off. It's really interesting. Maybe it's because of me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true that, you know, it's to be honest with you, my my advice back then was just simply people can pronounce that versus Huawei. So, you know, you got a winner just just in that, especially in the US market. Um, yeah. But they were confused as far as, you know, what they wanted Honor to be, which was mainly an online versus not, right? And and they were concerned about markets where they already had a strong presence and they were concerned about cannibalization and they weren't thinking about opportunity, which is what you were talking about yeah. when you advised them to, to make that move. Yeah, no, it's interesting to me because I think that in a way, having spun off Honor is 
is also another benefit for Honor in so much that they can now make true flagships. You know, they always were scaling down a little bit from Absolutely. the best, right? They 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 would grab some bits and pieces from the part spin of the of the Huawei best, but they never could do the best, best, best. And now yeah. I think they can do the best, best, best. And I'm hoping that they got enough engineers from the imaging Leica aspect of things that uh, you know that kind of like when HTC sold half of itself to Google, right? That they still have that expertise in-house somehow. Yeah. We'll find out. We'll find out. But um, I'm excited overall about the future of Honor, but a bit frustrated and saddened by the future of Huawei, frankly. (laughs) Well, I think it's always bad for the market, right? When you're where you have one of the key players that is crippled as far as what they can do from a from a um, you know go to market perspective so is you know at the end of the day is about the consumer so yeah uh one last item of news and then i want to talk to you about small phones because i just reviewed the asus Zenfone 8 and you know the iphone 12 mini hasn't really sold that well and i kind of want to take your temperature as an analyst as to where you think that flagship compact vibe is going but before that let's talk about a very big phone it's you know not that huge but uh realme has launched the x7 max 5g with a mediatek dimensity 1200 in india you know very much like feels like a oneplus phone right <laughs> in the sense that the price is unreal i mean check this out it's starting at twenty-seven thousand rupees so 370 dollars us is what it is roughly for you know some pretty crazy specs and you know this is india you kind of expect that at this point it's par for the course 120 hertz display amoled 1080p of course you've got you know a whole bunch of ram like i think it's 8 and 128 as the the base level which is pretty generous uh what else do we have here 64 megapixel main camera 8 megapixel ultra the usual triple there's a useless sticker camera in the back i call them sticker cameras the ones that might as well be stickers uh two megapixel macro lens you know i mean look there's nothing super spectacular here but hey look at that 4500 milliamp hour battery with 50 watt charging boom yeah it's becoming <laughs> a thing for 370 dollars just to give you some perspective 370 dollars in the u.s will get you a OnePlus. Nord N10 5G, the the one that we were talking about earlier, that it's it's cheaper, it's three hundred dollars, but it's such a difference in terms of what you're getting for your money, right? And and gets you maybe a Moto G of some kind that's like right. a six hundred series Snapdragon 4G chip. <laughs> it's like a different world out there. This is actually not as big of a phone as I thought. It only has a six point four two inch display. I thought it was going to be one of those Note size phones, but. I guess not. It's funny that you think about, you know, we now think about 6.4 as, a, you know, not a big phone. Well, I personally find that the sweet spot for me. 6.4, 6.5 is the perfect size. I find that it's a 6.67, the 6.8, the, you know, that that large, like, note size yeah. is uh, too big for me. And I always say that, like, there was a time when I thought nobody needed bigger than 4.3 inches back in the HTC Evo days. Remember that? Yeah. And here we are. And I think I that... Know. That gets to the core of your questions about, you know, whether or not the small phones have a, have a future. I, I I never believed they did, to be honest with you. I think that um, the only time where I thought something like the 12 Mini had a role to play was for those people that don't have um, a wearable device and they want to be able to use a smaller device to kind of detox, right? The whole yeah. palm idea. And I think we're over that now. You can you can detox from a software perspective, but putting things in place so that, you know, you don't get sucked into notifications and other things. But also yeah. I think that more and more people will go to wearables. And so I think that that detoxing will be less necessary than, than it did before. So I, I don't really see a market long-term for smaller phones. So, you know, it's interesting because I've changed my mind with using the Zenfone 8, actually. I I haven't used the iPhone 12 mini, which is even smaller in size. But the Zenfone 8 has made me realize that it's not for me, but I can see how some people want this. This is a very much a no-compromise phone in every way. The only thing it's missing is wireless charging. Everything else it does absolutely superbly well. But like the iPhone 12 mini, it is, is a little bit constrained on battery life, right? 
but not enough to be a huge issue. And so I think for people who have small hands, there are such people. <laughs> and and for people who maybe do a lot of their work on a tablet that they carry with them or ultra thin and light that they carry with them, they're more comfortable with that work mode and they just want to triage more than anything else. This phone is actually still okay. To give you some perspective on size, it is a little bit bigger, minor millimeters bigger than the iPhone SE 2020. So it's not tiny phone like the iphone 12 mini is a whole different scale smaller right and in terms of size here to also give you another dimension perspective it's slightly smaller than a galaxy s21 mm -hmm. okay so it's between the s21 and the iphone se 2020 and then the closest comparison believe it or not i had to actually put them physically next to each other because it's really hard to gauge looking at numbers but it's almost identical in size to the pixel 4a and the Pixel 5. Oh, and wow. it's interesting because I reviewed the Pixel 5 and the Pixel 4a last year, but three months apart. And I had them both physically in the same room, but I never really put them side by side. They are almost identical in size. I never realized how small the Pixel 5 was until I put it next to the 4a. It is small, yeah. Because they have different display sizes because there's less bezel on the 5, yeah. mm -hmm. right? But they're identical almost in terms of like chassis dimensions. So, What's interesting to me here is that the Zenfone 8 made me realize that maybe, just maybe, there is a niche market for this. And I think Asus is kind of the perfect player for that because, they're, again, they're not, a lot of their stuff is subsidized by their ROG gaming stuff and their components and their PCs and their laptops. So they can afford to kind of have a lost leader and explore these niche markets. And I'm glad somebody is. And that's what's so wonderful about you know, the phone ecosystem these days is that there's still some people taking chances with different form factors. And I think Apple might have gone a little too small with the iPhone 12 mini. And I think the reason it's not selling as well is primarily because of battery life. Whereas I think the Zenfone is constrained on battery, but not as bad as the iPhone 12 mini from what I hear from all the reports. So I think it's also a bit of a power play on Asus is flexing their muscles, showing that they can make a no compromise other than wireless charging flagship. Performance-wise, it kind of really surprised me. I, I wrote the review for Hot Hardware and they want me to do benchmarks. And I ran the benchmarks and this thing slots almost butting up against the ROG Phone 5, their gaming flagship. It's extremely fast. Oh, wow. For a phone that size... The engineering challenges to make the thermal works like that are... I was about to say, I ask you how hot it gets. When I ran sustained benchmarks that like actually see how the performance decreases as the thing gets right. warmer, it held up, Caro. It got up to 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, wow. But it kept going. I don't know how good that is for the battery and the chip and stuff long term, <laughs> but... But the point I'm trying to make is that you could play the most demanding Android games on this tiny little Asus Zenfone 8 and be perfectly okay. It's kind of amazing, you know? So there you go. I wasn't planning on bringing up the Zenfone 8, but here we are. I think <laughs> the, the small phones, I think there's a market for them. And I think that, I hope that it continues to stay a niche. And unfortunately, I'm worried that Apple's not going to go there anymore. I think they're going to go as small as the SE. 2020 like they did last year but i don't think we're going to see anything much smaller than for a while right i don't think so and to be honest with you i don't think that that target market is necessarily upgrading at the same rate as as people that buy you know larger uh, top of the line phones and so you know even upgrading every you know two to three years would be enough yeah indeed well listen we should wrap up do you want to tell folks on the internet where they can find you out there uh, you can find me on Twitter pretty much every every moment uh, at Caro, uh, C-A-R-O underscore Milanese, M-I-L-A-N-E-S-I. I write for Creative Strategies and I also have a column on uh, Forbes where I focus more about the uh, tech for, for good and diversity and inclusion in tech. Which is very important. So folks... Do follow Carolina. Great content. And you know where to find me? I'm at Tankerl on Twitter. That's T-N-K-G-R-L. Like the comic book character. Just drop the vowels. 
If you want to speak with Carol and I about this podcast, hit us up on Twitter, ask us the questions, comments, all that are welcome. If you want to see pretty pictures of phones and or pretty pictures taken with phones, go to my Instagram. I post some stuff there. Same handle at Tankerl. Drop the vowels, T-N-K-G-R-L. There's also a couple of YouTube channels that go alongside the podcast, and that's youtube.com slash mobiletechpodcast, which is the main channel, has all the unboxing videos, some reviews, some hands-on. It's mostly visual content to go with the show. And then there is youtube.com slash mobiletechmore, which is a channel my producer and I are slowly developing to kind of cover the fringes of mobile tech. For us, what fringes are like things like travel tech, home automation stuff, maybe some car stuff. Basically, we get all these gadgets sent to us that don't really fit neatly in the mobile tech, you know, box. So those are the ones you're going to see there. Also, I want to remind people that the podcast lives at mobiletechpodcast.com. So you can subscribe there. There's an RSS feed, but we're also on all the major platforms. So Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, pretty much everywhere. If your app lets you rate or review the show, please consider doing that. It'd be great. And as you know, I now have a Patreon at patreon.com slash TNKGRL. That's patreon.com slash TNKGRL. If you want special content, if you want to see this particular podcast on video, unedited, just after I make it, so a day or two before it actually gets published as a nicely polished audio podcast, join the Patreon. There's a tier for that. There's also a Discord server, so check that out. So I want to thank Philip for being a new patron this week, and I want to thank John and Dave as well for joining. Thanks so much, folks. I appreciate your patronage. And yes, check out the Patreon, folks, patreon.com slash TNKGRL. And if you don't want to use Patreon, there's another option. I have a donate link in the show notes. It's a PayPal link. You can use that to make a donation. I'd appreciate it. Finally, I want to thank our sponsor, Audible. Audible has been with us since the early days, and they're pretty great. If you like books as much as I do, if you like reading as much as I do, Audible is really the best audiobook platform. Basically, it's for listening to books instead of reading them. We have a special deal for you. You get a 30-day free trial. You get to keep a book at the end. And you help the podcast and you help Audible all at the same time. So check it out. AudibleTrial.com slash mobile tech is URL. That's AudibleTrial.com slash mobile tech. Audible is where I get a lot of my reading done by listening. And if you're curious, the selection is pretty amazing. So they have a lot of books read by the authors, which is what I really like. And some of these books are like epic, you know, nine, 12 hours listening sessions. And it might sound crazy, but it's like, you know, you read a book, you don't read a book in one sitting usually. I mean, some people do, but you generally want to break it down to two hours here or whatever. And this is great. It's great for road trips. It's great if you're like a delivery driver dropping off UPS and FedEx packages all day and you want to keep your eyes on the road. So check out Audible. They're pretty great. And if you help them, you help us and you get a good deal at the end as well. So audibletrial.com slash mobile tech. And I want to thank Audible for being our longtime sponsor. And Carol, I want to thank you for being my guest yet again. Uh, it's always a pleasure. I'm always amazed by the wealth of knowledge that you have. And we always end up having entertaining conversation because we almost agree on everything, but not quite. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I, I love your insights as well. So we'll definitely have you on the show again at some point soon. And folks, you know, we'll have another show next week. So stay tuned for that. Until then, cheers, everybody. This has been the Mobile Tech Podcast with Tank Girl, proudly presented by worldpodcasts.com. You can visit us online at mobiletechpodcast.com.